evidence and answers. As a young man, Abdu Murray was a zealous defender and evangelist for his Islamic faith. However, he came to find the truth in Jesus. How was he convinced about Jesus? And what led him to leave Islam and follow Jesus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be speaking with former Muslim Abdu Murray as he shares his powerful story of leaving the bondage of Islam and finding freedom in Christ. But how do your Muslim friends respond when you share those things with them? How effective is it? That's a great question. And, and you know, there's two there was this varying responses. One initially is to, I've often seen Muslims get angry because, and I found this out, whether Muslims or atheists, Hindus, whatever it might be, and someone gets angry at a response you might give, sometimes it's an indication that you've made a little more sense than they would have liked. I remember getting angry with Christians, not because they were being offensive or because they were being silly, but because they weren't being offensive and they weren't being silly. And how dare they make this much sense? You know, that kind of a thing. It, it's unnerving. It shakes, it shakes people because they don't want to get rid of their convictions. Opinions you can change. Convictions are a little tougher to change. So that's one reaction. The other reaction oftentimes is, is a defensiveness, trying to respond by either ignoring the force of the argument altogether or undermining it. In fact, I remember giving this argument at a symposium with uh, the famous uh, Muslim apologist Shabir Ali, and he said, you admit, right, that the only place in the Bible where it says God is love, that's in 1 John. It doesn't say it in the New Testament anywhere. It doesn't say it anywhere else except for there, that this idea that God is eternally love. You admit that, right? And I said, those words? Yes, there's no words elsewhere in the Bible where it says God is love other than in 1 John. I don't see what the point actually is of making, of, of, of making that argument, especially when you look at the Old Testament where it says that I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you look at other places where God's love is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternally loving, so I don't see the point and the response. So a lot of times they'll sort of try their best to get around this. But the third thing that happens, happens either eventually, especially if you're saying that speaking the truth in love, coming alongside a Muslim and saying, I love you and I say these things, not to try to convince you to not be a Muslim, but because I want you to know the Savior. You cannot go into heaven based on your works, and you're trying your best to do that. And I admire the desire to be righteous, but understand you can never be. And I don't want you to stand before God on your works. I want you to stand before God on Jesus. And you're showing a mutual love and respect to somebody else. Either then or sometimes right away, a Muslim will see the beauty of it. You know, Pat, I was at a, um, a university and I was doing a dialogue with a Muslim called Who is God? And I basically gave the arguments I just gave you to a, a packed room full of Muslims. They lined up at the microphones. And they were asking me questions and asking me questions. And two or three of them, and all of them were very respectful, but two or three of them actually said something along the lines of, when you describe the Trinity or you describe that cross, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I've never heard this before. We did not know this is what Christians believed. Can you please tell me more? And I'll tell you, I've gotten responses from people. Interestingly enough, Pat, I've had in the past four years, five years, a number of atheists who have told me that they became Christians because once they understood what the Trinity was really about, they thought that was the most marvelous thing in the world. So Muslims have done it and atheists have done it as well. Is it a magic bullet? No, of course it isn't, because there's a human heart to deal with, and the Holy Spirit deals with that. But these arguments are accepted, 
they are considered. It might not look like it at first, but I've often found that these have stuck in the heart and have uh, allowed people to really think these things through. Yeah, so the Trinity is mentioned several times in the Quran, you know, as blasphemy, and Muslims have the wrong understanding of the Trinity, as well as other non-believing religious faiths. But in Islam, it's considered three gods. How do you get a Muslim to understand the Trinity as best as we can? It's a great question, and here's an interesting statement. The Trinity, as explained in the Quran, is blasphemy. A Christian would also agree with that. The Quran gets it wrong. It describes, as it says, it says in one spot, desist and say not three, or unbelievers are those who say that God is a third of three. No, no Christian has ever said God is a third of three, that somehow there's God and two other beings. Another part of the Quran says that, asks Jesus, it's, uh, God says to Jesus, did you ever tell anybody to worship you and your mother as gods besides me? Well, no one's ever thought that Mary was a god. Christians have never taught that Jesus, Mary, and God are the Trinity. So in other words, the Quran is attacking a hill no one is defending. So I often first want to point that out, is that you understand that this book is not describing what any Christian believes. So I can agree with you. That description, that's blasphemy. And I have no problem with that because it's not describing the Trinity. But then I go on and say, what is the Trinity? So I think it's important that we, my personal view... And I know others disagree, but my personal view is that analogies are very limited in their helpfulness. So oftentimes when Christians want to use analogies like the, the Trinity is like water, uh, water can be liquid, solid, or gas. That's helpful to a degree, but at a certain point, no one body of water can be liquid, solid, and gas at the same time. I know there's a triple point, and there's all these other things in chemistry and other in physics, but the reality is, is that the same body of water can't be all three states at the same time. Otherwise, it's modalism, which is a heresy to thought by the church. And a Muslim who knows his stuff will use that analogy against a Christian if they try too hard with it. So what I often do is just explain what the Trinity really is. And I have two ways of doing this. The first way is just purely on logic. The Trinity teaches that God is one in one way and three in another way. And if those ways are exclusive of each other, then it's not a contradiction. So for example, the idea that God is one, it means one in his nature. So if I were to pick up a bottle, for example, I would ask someone, what is this? What is its nature in its whatness? What is this bottle? And someone would say, oh, not a living thing. But you could point to me and you could legitimately say, what is that? I have a nature. My nature is living thing, let's say. So I have a whatness, I have a nature, and the bottle has a nature. But you don't go to the bottle. Who is that? You know, you don't ask who the bottle is because the bottle doesn't have personhood. It lacks a quality that I have. It has nature and I have nature, but you can say to me, who is that? Well, I'm the living thing called Abdu. My consciousness allows me to speak and and relate to the outside world. So oftentimes I'll say, that's the difference. So when Christians say God is one in his nature and three in his persons, he's saying God has one what, one nature of divine being, but that divine being has three separate consciousnesses. And that is not a contradiction. Now, is it hard to grasp? Yeah. And the reason why it's hard to grasp is that none of us has three consciousnesses. We are single conscience beings. So it makes, it makes sense to me that we wouldn't fully grasp it. It doesn't defy logic. It just defies our, our understanding uh, because we're simply single conscience beings. Now, the second part of this is that I would look at a Muslim and say, now, show me the illogic there. If there's anything that's a, a logical contradiction, 
point it out. And they, usually they haven't been able to show that. But then they'll say something like, well, in Islam, you know, God is simple. It's easy to under, understand. It's straightforward. And my response to that is, that's actually a strike against it. If God is so easy for you to understand that you can grasp him within five seconds, maybe your God is too small. Maybe your God is a little too easy to understand. So from the logic to the scripture, then to the theological necessity, I think you can, when you put all these things together, you can reach a Muslim. Because what you're really doing is you're doing what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4. He says, make the best use of the time, letting your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Each Muslim wants something different. And with a, a Muslim who wants to believe in God's greatness, you can use all of that to speak to what he wishes was true. And a, a being who, does, who, who, who doesn't defy logic, but does defy our experience, is greater than us. And then also you can see that through the Trinity, he, is, he doesn't need anything either, and he is the greatest possible being. So I go from explanation. I know it's tough work, but it's worth it. All right, Abdul, yeah, that's a great explanation on the Trinity. That's one of the biggest hurdles you need to get through, you know, with a Muslim. Well, how about this whole idea about God becoming a man? That's also troubling for a Muslim and God dying on the cross. How about that? How do you explain that to a Muslim? In some ways, the idea of the incarnation is important as well uh, to, to describe, I think, analogies become very, very tricky, but in some ways they're helpful, but they also are, of course, of limitation. You're using a created order to describe the one who created it. So there's always going to be limitations, aren't there? But if I were to say uh, God becoming a man, what do we really mean by these? See, I'm a very important, I'm a very big student of the way words are used and the way they're perceived. As a Muslim, when I would hear the phrase, God became a man, I don't hear that God took on human nature. What I hear is that God limited himself and devoided himself or divested himself of the divine nature. Because in the Muslim mind, and I understand why this is the case, to be human is to be limited, and to be God is to be unlimited. And therefore, if you become human, you become limited, and therefore you're not God anymore. And that seems like blasphemy. And look, if that's exactly what the Bible teaches, then yes, I could see why they would believe that and why they, I would even agree with them. The Bible teaches that Jesus empties himself, that's that kenosis that the scriptures speak of, but it doesn't mean that God stopped being God. It means that he simply suppressed the expression of all of his divine faculties. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, God the Son, suppressed the expression of all of his divine faculties and took on human flesh. There's a great book by a wonderful philosopher, his name is Thomas Morris, or Tom Morris, in his book, The Logic of God Incarnate, where he goes through specifically how to logically deduce or actually come to the idea that Jesus could be God. So a Muslim might say, well, to be man is to be limited, to be God is to be unlimited. How can you be both? It seems like a contradiction. And the answer is no. First, when we look at what it, what's going on with the incarnation, what it teaches is that Again, the nature and person distinction is important, that there is the person of Jesus Christ, but the person of Jesus Christ has two natures. So there's two what's in one person. So the Trinity is that there is one what with three persons. The incarnation is that there one person, Jesus, has two natures, both a human nature and a divine nature. Now, those two things aren't mixed. He's not half man, half God, semi-man, semi-God. He is fully man. In other words, he has all the qualities necessary to be human, and he is fully God. He has all the qualities necessary 
to be God, but they don't mix in with each other, but they do share the same consciousness or the same personhood, which is Jesus himself. So again, not a contradiction. If you understand person and nature to be distinct ideas, it's not a contradiction in terms. So as Tom Morris describes, he says, look, Jesus has every quality necessary to be human, a body, a physical body, rational thought, the ability to relate to the outside world, and all these things. That's what it takes to be human. So he has 100% of those faculties. It's not necessarily the case that a human being has to be limited in his understanding of the world to be human. You could be an, an omniscient human, I suppose. Nothing inherent in the definition. Now, no other human beings have been omniscient, of course, just the one who is Jesus himself, because he has the divine nature, and Jesus has all the qualities necessary to be divine. So I think it's important to point out to a, to, to a Muslim, when you're using words like God became man, don't translate it in your head with an Islamic view. Try to understand in the most charitable sense, what does a Christian mean? When God became man, it didn't mean he, and therefore, ceased to be God. It's that God took on human flesh. He took on human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. So the human is the human, and the divine still says the divine, which explains, of course, why we see certain limitations, like the body dying, like Jesus needing to eat, and all. There's, there's a human nature to him. He's really human. He's not play-acting. He's actually human, but he also knows all things. He can raise the dead, including himself from the dead. The Bible describes numerous places, and oftentimes Muslims will say only the Gospel of John describes Jesus as divine. Well, I beg to differ. There's so many verses in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' divine nature. In Matthew, you see that Jesus is the one who sends the prophets. Well, only God sends prophets. In Luke and other places, you see so many things where Jesus has divine qualities, like the forgiveness of sins and the ability to raise himself from the dead and all these things. So you see that Jesus teaches about himself that he has the divine nature, but he also teaches that he has the human nature. And those two things are not necessarily incompatible in a single person. Yes, and how do we best explain the crucifixion to a Muslim? I've had Muslims say, well, if God died on the cross, who is running the universe? You know, and I have to try to explain to them, no, Jesus didn't go into oblivion. His human body died. But how is the best way to explain that to a Muslim? That's a great question. You know, one of the ways I think that's important to do it is, is, again, to level the playing field in terms of what we mean by our terms. So when a Muslim says something like, and I've heard it many times, I used to say it <laughs> plenty of times, if God died, then who was running things? So I asked them back, when you say die, what do you mean? Do you mean cease to exist? Because when you die as a Muslim, what happens to you? Do you cease to exist or does your body stop functioning? One of those, it's not, it's not cease to exist, is it? I mean, your soul persists, right? Yeah. So the essence of you persists after death, right? As a Muslim, you believe that, and they would have to say yes. For example, Muhammad didn't cease to exist, did he, when he died? Well, no. Okay. So we're already at a point where we understand that if Jesus dies and Jesus is God, it doesn't mean that God stops existing. It just means that there is a certain state, something that happens in the process. Jesus' human body dies. His his human nature does undergo the death that we would have to die because he he is our sacrifice in our place. But he doesn't, as you pointed out, he doesn't cease to exist. He still runs the universe, as it were, because God is spirit. And there is a human nature, which is physical, but there's a divine nature, which is spirit. And none of that ceases to exist. A friend of mine once gave this analogy. He said to a Muslim, he says, okay, I'm holding a Quran in my hand. He says, yeah. He goes, is this, is this, the, is this the actual Quran? He says, well, yes, it's in Arabic, isn't it? He said, yeah. 
says, but is this the actual Quran? If I were to burn this book or if it were to fall into a shredder or somehow there was a fire in my house and it were to become cinders, would the Quran stop existing? He said, well, no, there's other versions of the Quran, other copies of it. Okay, well, he said, let's say somehow every Quran in the world somehow was destroyed. It disintegrated. They, you know, there was a bizarre freak occurrence where lightning struck every Quran in the world. Would the Quran cease to exist? Or is this just the sort of the physical manifestation of that Quran? He says, no, it wouldn't cease to exist. He says, okay, well, well then why would you think that just because Jesus is in a tomb, that God stops existing, or that God stops working, or that Jesus himself stops working? It doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily follow. So that's given on the same playing field, and they see that the word death does not mean non-existence. We can already see that the objection while pithy and easy to say, has almost no weight to it whatsoever. And I've seen many a Muslim ab- uh, abandon the objection because they suddenly see, okay, okay, I get it, okay, that's fine. But how is it that God could die if he's called the always living and the ever living? And again, you can see even from Jesus' own words, it's not like Christians didn't know what to do with this. Like, oh my goodness, God died. How, how do we explain this? Jesus explains it in his own words when he says, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. He doesn't say, I'm, oh boy, I don't know what's going to happen now. He knows where his spirit goes. He knows the body was in the tomb, but the spirit was in the hands, with the, in the hands of the Father. He was there. And then that body is infused once again with life. And Jesus, of course, says that. He says, I lay my life down on my own accord. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own, and I have the power to raise it up again. Well, if you stop existing, you have no power. But if you keep persisting, then you have the power. So Jesus raises himself from the dead. Of course, the Bible teaches that the Father raises him, and the Bible teaches that the Spirit raises him. So isn't it fascinating that Jesus, God the Son, doesn't cease to exist, but he and God the Father and God the, and God the Holy Spirit raise Jesus from the dead. In other words, God through and through is involved, including God the Son. Yeah, that's one of the best explanations that I've heard, whether to a Muslim or just uh, someone else unfamiliar with the Trinity and the resurrection. That, that's one of the best explanations that I've heard. And that's why we have oh, you on the air. <laughs> you know, as we start bringing this to a conclusion, there came a point in my journey where I said, I don't have all the answers, but I've got enough to mm-hmm. make a decision here. And when I realized the evidence was pretty compelling, I finally just surrendered my life to Christ, not knowing what it all meant, but just saying, this is true. He is God. He deserves my life. At what point did you finally make that decision that, hey, there's enough to make a decision here, and I give my life to Jesus Christ. I leave behind Islam, and I give my life to Christ. That's Wow, that's a great question, and it, it brings to mind so many things that I didn't have all the answers to. You and I are both humble enough, I, I would hope, to say that we still don't have all the answers to everything, and, yeah. which is going to make heaven fun, because if we knew all the answers now, one, we'd be God, but two, we'd be bored in heaven, <laughs> and we're going to be in a state of perpetual learning from the infinite one whose wealth of knowledge is never exhausted. So a couple of things that I didn't know or fully grasped, but I took on faith was, for example, the Trinity. I became a believer not fully understanding the import of the Trinity. The whole thing about God not needing anybody, that all came later. But what got me was that idea that the greatest possible being would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. That was the cross. I knew that Jesus claimed to be God, did I fully quite get it? Not 100%, but he said it. And what got me there was he said it, and then he rose again from the dead. 
Now, if he said it and he was a liar or a crazy person, he would have stayed dead. But if he was who he said he was, he would have risen. And so the resurrection, the historical evidence for the resurrection, proved enough to me that when Jesus said he was God, the second person of the Trinity, I should believe him because he rose from the dead. Because guys who rise from the dead tend to have credibility. So that got me there. But I didn't know everything. I was still fuzzy on the Trinity a little bit and needed to wrestle with that quite a bit, but then I got it, and I really did get it afterwards. What got me there really was the coalescing of all the things that I was hoping was true in Islam, of God's greatness. I began to see Islam didn't answer all those questions for me. The preservation of the Bible, the evidence for all of it, it was all mounting, but at some point, Pat, it was just intellectual assent. I was just intellectually agreeing. Yes, the Bible has never been changed, and yes, Jesus claims to be the Son of God, and yes, there's this really cool fact of the resurrection, but it was when all those things suddenly mattered to me that my search was at least coming to a conclusion now with regard to who is this being, who is God. That's when I gave my life to Christ. Yeah, there was a lot. Uh, the other things I didn't know was what would happen to me afterwards. Who would I be afterwards? What would happen with you know family and community and all these things? All those things loomed large in my mind, but honestly, what really got me was I knew enough. And what I knew enough about was this, that there was a being who loved me so much and I was undeserving of that love through and through in every conceivable way. I was broken and undeserving. And he loves me so much that he comes and hangs on this rugged tree, this cross with nails through his flesh, experiencing that forsakenness of the Father, rubbing those those ribbons of flesh up against the splintery cross. And I was going to say to him, sorry, not good enough. I might get yelled at. I might get some discomfort in my life. How in the world could I possibly at that point, knowing the reality of all that, say, that's not enough. You need to do more. I just couldn't do it. And the beauty of it overwhelmed me. So I didn't know everything, and I still don't, but I knew enough. And what I knew was glorious. Nothing compared. Honestly, God is not sacrificial in Islam. He's not sacrificial in any other system of belief. And that's a truism, by the way. I think that's important for us to take away from this. I often speak and say this, and Robbie does, and, and so many other, others have as well, that all religious systems are, are superficially the same, but they're fundamentally different. And that's largely true, except in one way. In one way, all religions are equally the same, except for Christianity. All religions teach you that if you do enough, you can please God, and he'll eventually accept you because he owes you, whether it's through, the, through karma or you know, the Hinduism or, or even in, 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 in certain strands of Buddhism, where you achieve a certain level of enlightenment through the affordable truths and the Eightfold Path and all these things. And even New Age teaches you this whole idea of being true to yourself and you become one with the universe and be a good person. Christianity alone teaches us uniquely the truth. We all know it. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior that God has provided for us. It's not that we please God. It's that God has decided to make us pleasing to Him through His Son. That is unique, and that's all I needed to know, is that it's beautiful, it's uniquely beautiful, and it's historically true. That's fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Abdu Murray. He is the North American Director with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and the author of several books. And we'll have to have him back on our show to talk about his latest book. He holds a bachelor's from the University of Michigan and a Juris Doctorate from the Michigan Law School. He's a prolific author, writer, and speaker, and he serves as the scholar-in-residence of Christian thought 
and apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute at the Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Well, Abdul Murray, if people want to find out more information about you and the things that you've done and about Islam and your other works, where can they go to find more information? If they go to our website, it's rzim.org, and then just type in my name. You'll get my bio, where I'm speaking next, all the things I've written, and lots of uh, videos with me on it. Uh, or you go to abdumurray.com. That's A B is in boy, D is in David, U M U R R A Y.com. Abdumurray.com. Fantastic. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 